hold up, church. Your boy's up. We're going to read the scriptures just like Josiah did. King Josiah to honor God, show value to God's word. By God's grace, if you're born again, this is what we believe to be objective truth. This is what we submit to. Amen? So that being said, I am going to read through the scriptures, the portion that I will preach. And then after that, I'll pray, and then I'm going to herald its truths for all of us to submit to. There is freedom in this place. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You have freedom to vocalize an amen. That just means that you're going to be agreeing with whatever I may be praying or whatever truth you see up here. And you have uh, permission from here where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom to tune me out and focus on just praying the truths and thanking God where you're at. And then as usual, you have freedom to do nothing that I just said and just chill and thank God for being in his presence. Amen? Okay. Before we get into our message this morning, Jesus is praying to God the Father. We're still in the middle of that. The context is that all of the disciples are listening in, and what they pick up, we desire to pick up as well. And there are hours, hours left before he ends up being unjustly tried and crucified. And with that being said, verse 13 is where we pick up. Jesus talking to God the Father here, and he says, now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. God, thank you that your joy is our strength in this church. God, thank you that whatever would be talked about this morning and whatever has been said in past weeks have been for the strengthening of your church. God, thank you that you are out for our joy. And I just can't help but think the possessive word, my. God, there is a difference between your joy and our joy between the world's joy and your joy. God, would you help us receive your joy this morning? It's one that comes from an infinite, eternal source. Someone in the church say amen. Amen. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Jesus picks up in verse 14, talking to the Father, and he says, I've given them, meaning the disciples, your word. God, thank you that anyone who is here that is born again has come to know your word is truth. God, I thank you that the word is where our hearts are broken up like a hammer. God, it's where the sword cuts our heart, filleting open the motivations and attitudes of our heart, God. Thank you that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. God, we thank you for your word. Help us not take it for granted. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I, meaning Jesus, does not belong to the world. God, thank you that we know our belonging, that in our identity we can stand against all the detestable things that we see and disagree with in culture. God, I thank you that our identity is rooted in you and who you say that we are. We can act out and think like you because you thought in otherworldly ways which you revealed in your word. God, thank you for belonging. There are people here just even in the midst right now who have never sensed belonging and felt belonging before. This morning, Holy Spirit, help them feel belonging here. Help them feel belonging in your presence and bring them to surrender. I'm not asking you, Jesus is saying, to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. God, there are unseen things and there is a strong enemy. And we thank you, God, that you have prayed and are praying to protect us, to protect our marriages. Come on now. To protect us from temptation to protect us from idols that are insignificant and smaller, and in any moment, we can end up worshiping them. 
God, we know that there is a powerful enemy out there, but you don't shake in your boots and neither will this church. We thank you for your protection. And we thank you, God, that you are for us and not against us. No weapon formed against us shall, what church? Prosper. Do not, they do not belong to this world and any more than I do, Jesus speaking. Make them holy by your truth. Church, say truth. Teach them your word, which is your, just as you sent me, meaning Jesus, into the world, I am sending them into the world. I give them myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your, let's pray, church. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. Help us submit to it as much of an inconvenience as it may be, God. And would you end up building up your people to be bold to just have deposits in our soul and in our mind this morning that we can end up discerning and distinguishing the voices of the world, ourselves, and the enemy. Christ, get more glory. Bring us out of the fear of man in this place this morning. We desire to be a church that fears you. Even as I stand up here, anoint these words, anoint my mind, guard my heart. In Jesus, let me pray. Amen. Let's go. Three things that the church needs to know this morning through this passage. The first one, as Jesus is praying to the Father, is that the world hates the disciples. Second thing is that the enemy is behind the hate that hates the disciples. And then lastly, is that the disciples have been left for a specific assignment. And church, this goes without saying, but the church, meaning the people of Christ, those who have let Jesus run their lives, We're being opposed in ways that are more indifferent nowadays. The world and its patterns of thinking are that much more, not just out of the state, but infiltrating its way through media, social media, and into our households. There are plenty of things that oppose the word of God and his will. And this morning, as we go through the text, a part of my job as a heralder of God's truth is to say, what do we do now? So you guys ready to get into it? Verse 13, Jesus speaking to the Father, now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. The last five chapters have been designated for Jesus to say farewell to all of his disciples and in every single thing that he lets them know about, all the privileges that they have in Christ, how he's going back to the Father and to make a room for them in heaven, how the Holy Spirit is going to come and pour out after he leaves as a same quality of helper. All of it is for the disciples' joy. And today, this morning, by God's grace, same thread of thinking. This will end up strengthening our joy in him. Verse 14, Jesus speaking again. This is going to be him talking to the Father the whole time. I have given them your word. What word has Jesus given the disciples? That he has come from God the Father, meaning he is God in the flesh. And that he is going to end up living a perfect life, being crucified in his perfect life. And then he would end up going to make a way to heaven. And then he would raise from the grave and anyone who would believe in him would have eternal life. Which means not just a place in heaven, but an ongoing interactive relationship with God, the living God of the universe right now. And not only that, he's, it's everything that Jesus has said during his earthly ministry or has ever done. Verse 14, it's because of these, by the way, 
these words and these actions that the disciples believe is why they're going to experience being hated on. Verse 14, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. So Jesus ends up using the word hate. Its Greek word is miseo, and it means to detest. And the world that he's describing has to do with any and everyone who is not submitted to the will of Christ. In other words, to make it simple, if you're not born again and you're not a Christian, that's a representation of who he's talking about, the world. And with the world, we all knew this before, especially for you senior saints, Bill Springer, if you're in here, 70 plus years of thinking like the world and the patterns of the world that opposes God's views and social structures and morality. All of those things are patterns of the world. And he says, the world and the way of its thinking will hate you, Jesus says to his disciples, because they hated him. History ends up testifying to this. Right after this, he's gonna, Jesus is going to get unjustly arrested, unjustly tried, and unjustly crucified. And then after that, all of his disciples who are following him, most of them will become martyrs, which is debatable, but at least they get persecuted. You can read through the book of Acts and be like, my goodness, that is serious persecution. And it's all because of their trust and faith in Christ. And if you think that was way back then in recent history, there's a professor, Dr. Jo jo uh, Todd Johnson. Uh, he's the professor of global Christianity and mission at Gordwell Conwell Seminary. He estimates that in the last 120 years, basically meaning 1900 up into now, globally there have been 700 million martyrs for Christ. Hundred, seven, you, you can't even fathom that. 700 globally. And not just that, if you think, okay, that's too big of a number, I can't even comprehend that. Within the last 20 years, 2001 up until 2020, there have been 2 million approximately martyrs for Christ. 2 million. Okay, let's just take that and reflect on what that looks like. That means every year, if you were to go to Memorial Stadium, by the way, this is, if you go to Memorial Stadium, and if you, since 2001 up until today, were to fill the stadiums with born-again dead bodies, you could fill it up every year, once a year, and that wouldn't even come close to the two million count. That, my friends, is Jesus' words coming true. Church, the world detests the God that you worship and will detest you and I. The thinking and beliefs of the world are diametrically opposed, the scriptures say, to the way that the kingdom of God is orchestrated, the way that God has designed from the beginning in the Garden of Eden for us to operate in. And the reasons are many, plenty we could talk about, but ultimately, distinctly, Jesus offends the pride of the world, and he once did mine as well. Jesus offends the pride of the world, the world and the patterns of its thinking and the way they, they think through morality and what's and once I just did and did the morality. The world will hate to hear that morality is not up for debate. The world will hate to hear that God's inherently given each image bearer who breathes right now a moral compass etched in their heart that comes from him. The world will hate that Jesus said that there is an exclusive way to heaven and that's through Jesus. Because any person with intellect and reason says, okay, that means that 
anyone apart from Christ means what? Separation from God, hell. The world's going to hate that we cannot work our way up to God because God's made his way down to us. The world is going to end up hating that we are commanded as born-again people to forgive the most egregious sins in our life, not once, not twice, but seven times 70. Continually, the world and its patterns of thinking, the non-Christian patterns of thinking, oppose those things. And sure, you're not going to end up being detested by your neighbor uh, because you're a Christian, right? It, it may be because the fruits of the Spirit are evident in your life. Praise God for that. Maybe you're not being detested by your neighbor or coworker because uh, you maybe aren't saying anything. That's another issue. Uh, but then again, maybe it's just because you don't talk to people, period. <laughs> and you're one of those neighbors. I don't know what it is, but there are plenty of reasons why people do not, will not detest us. But when they find out, when the world finds out that you believe in a God who has said through his word that a new clump of cells within a female after conception is a baby, I'd like to see what happens there. I'd like to end up seeing when your neighbor and coworker in the world ends up believe, finding out that you believe that heterosexual marriage is God's designed way and pathway for families, I'd like to see what happens then, if we're detested or if we're not. I'd like to end up seeing if our neighbors detest us when we believe that genders and sexes have been given to us in godly order, in which there are two of them, male and female. I would like to see what happens on social media if you were to ever blast that out. So sure, you're not going to get slaughtered in the streets for those things. Sure, your bodies won't be a representation of Memorial Stadium on those things. But you will. You will get detestable things said to you when you disagree with the world's morality. You will be, as the culture said, canceled if you vehemently disagree with worldly patterns of thought. And we must remember that there's an enemy behind all of those things. Let's end up getting a straight shot on what is behind all of those worldly patterns of thinking. Look with me. Jesus ends up revealing it. Praise God. Verse 15, Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. You'll end up seeing up here, the evil one is behind everything. Jesus ends up saying, I'm praying for, for these disciples and those who are left behind, which is the church now, that you would protect them from the evil one, which you end up seeing the evil one is the adversary. He's the enemy. He's the devil. He's a fallen angel. He's the Satan. And he is behind all of the patterns of thought in the world. He works mightily through physical things, spiritual things, moral things, intellectual things. And I don't want to actually diminish the enemy because he's strong. The scriptures testify he's a strong created being. Absolutely. So let's give credit for the person who is behind all of this. But let's also end up saying there's a reason why, there's a reason why Jesus left us here. And before we get there, I want to end up pointing out uh, some of the things you will end up getting backlash from in believing in which the enemy is behind. These we would end up calling worldly movements. And that would be BLM, that would be LGBTQ plus community ideologies, and that would be CRT. These all appear, friends, on surface level to be good moral things. No one wants to be called a racist. 
No one wants to be called a sexist. No one wants to be called a bigot. But when we actually examine what is underneath those moral movements, which they are moral, we'll end up seeing a, a critical spirit behind them. So give me a couple minutes here to end up proving that. All these moral movements, they're rooted in something called critical theory. Critical theory. And that's a theory that criticizes social structures because they're supposedly oppressive. The oppressor and the oppressed. And underneath critical theory, which is the underpinning of those movements, critical race theory ends up criticizing current social structures in society and criticizing them because they are institutionally racist. So that's critical theory. Critical social justice theory ends up being um, really used by the LGBTQ community, uh, the Black Movement Matters movement, and it's a social structure that ends up criticizing the traditional family, also known as heterosexual marriage, and also ends up criticizing that there are two genders traditionally believed within our society. And so within the LGBTQ plus community and the Black Lives Matter movement, you'll end up seeing all the underpinnings end up going and filtering down to conflict theory. Interestingly enough, I think as, uh, Google has like something like a 409. They rarely give it out. That means they cancel a page if a website requests. In the Black Ladder, uh, Lives Matter movement, when uh, BLM was getting heat in around 2020 or 2021, they had their mission statement, and it said it was to undermine the traditional family unit, the heterosexual marriage. And then they got a 409 when they caught heat. So all of these movements are based in critical theory. And here's the thing. Critical theory ends up working its way and is rooted all the way down to Karl Marx's conflict theory. Karl Marx was an atheist who hated the church and hated religion and believed that the world was better without it. And it's where we get the buzzwords oppressor and oppressed. And here's my point. This is not a political spiel that I'm talking about. This right here opposes the word of God and his will and creation. It's an attack not on the USA or school district or fill in the blank. It's an attack on God and his word and his people. And so am I trying to convince people who are not born again yet to believe what I'm saying? The whole, that's the Holy Spirit's ministry, but I'm talking to the church specifically. Soften your hearts, look at the evidence, and let's dig a little bit deeper. The enemy was the original critic. He was the one who criticized the creator in heaven, and he's the one who ended up getting put down. And he's continued to criticize everything since he's been on planet Earth. The original critic is behind critical theory, and the way we can tell this is because there's a plethora of counterfeits. Let's check it out. There's a counterfeit of repentance. The Bible says to repent to God. Critical theory says, and its movements, repent to people. Counterfeit of church discipline. The Bible ends up saying that you're to remove someone from the fellowship and bring them back when they're not willing to sin intentionally for restoration, to be in the grace of God's people. Well, in critical theory, you end up getting people to change by canceling them. You end up shaming them to repent. Two different hearts. One is shame and guilt, which that comes from who? Satan. The enemy, the devil, and the other one, restoration, comes from a good God named Christ. Counterfeit of crucifixion. The Bible says that Jesus was crucified for us. And if you end up vehemently disagreeing with the movements of critical theory, you'll be crucified in the public square. 
reputation through courts. Maybe not in this room, but if you paid attention in the last couple of decades in this country. There are Pharisees on both critical theory and in religion. The Pharisees used to nitpick on Jesus and everything that he did. And critical theorists will end up looking at behaviors and nitpick on something so that they can find what we call a microaggression. And that microaggression comes from conflict theory, critical theory. And it teaches that the oppressor has no other way of thinking than in an oppressor way. That there's no hope in change. Unless the hegemony, which is the minority group, ends up teaching the majority how to criticize their own people, and then we end up getting a little bit more justified according to critical theory. There's labeling from critical theory. You'll be called a religious bigot. You'll be called a non-binary bigot. White privilege, if you end up vehemently disagreeing. And critical theory ends up forming what's a mob mentality. We've, we've all seen it on social media. Maybe we've been a part of it even here. And that mob mentality, when you look in the Gospels, were never kind to Christ. They were the ones who ended up saying, crucify him. And yet hours before, they're saying, Hosanna, thank you for coming. Fickle. That is exactly what the world is like. And if you think that everything is out there, and if you think it's all in Virginia, if you think that it's in California or Washington State, a part of me being a shepherd teacher of CLB is to end up illuminating some truth and saying, hey, discern this. Okay, within the school district right now, if you're a parent, you'll end up getting emails. And you'll see that they're doing sensitivity training, quote, unquote, for their staff. If you look at it, you'll end up seeing that underneath all of it is critical theory training. Disguised as what we call sensitivity training. Think about it this way. If you thought in an old school mindset, it's just not the reality anymore. Teachers and educators are no longer given permission to just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. But they're moral agents to be poured into and then to teach your kids and grandkids on moral issues. And yet God's design is that that would come through the heads of the household. And so as much as, as I would want to say, hey, the school district's the issue. Look at the school district. I'm also challenging parents in here. Where are you at? Where are we at? How aware are we of what's being poured into our children? You've been given your children as good gifts. Proverbs talks about how they're arrows in the quiver of a warrior, and you direct the target that they hit. Where are we pointing our kids? Are we aware of where we're pointing our kids? Because if we don't, someone else will. <laughs> Anyone with a daughter knows that if you ain't going to date your daughter, if you aren't going to pour into her, she's going to find attention somewhere else, okay? And it's similar just with our kids in general. Where are we at with our children? If you want to ask the superintendent, to take a look at what they got going on. Feel free, okay? Y'all are paying the taxes. Anyways, this is what they ended up saying on their statement in which you'd have to surely read through. A part of their multicultural diversity statement in which I read this morning is they want to provide professional development, meaning what's going on right now, to teachers in the school district, which has already started, for all employees to identify, examine, and eliminate, now here's the key word, institutional beliefs, policies and practices that perpetuate discrimination, 
perpetuate discrimination. Test and discern that for yourself. Do as the Holy Spirit leads you. You're just being made aware, that's all. You're just being made aware. The fight's not in another place. It's here in the school district. And it's also being poured into your children as they walk through the doors. But in all of it, in all of it, we must remember the enemy behind all of it. So as to keep ourselves clean from bitterness, resentment, and hatred. That as you watch the news, which by the way, if you're thinking, what, what news station does this guy watch? I don't. <laughs> okay. Like this is just looking at the word of God, listening to certain counselors, and then discerning because the spirit of God has been given to me. Now, I'm not, you listen and discern, okay, from your news stations, but that's just free information in case you were wondering. So as we go into knowing who the true enemy is, it's just helpful. Uh, my coach ended up saying it this way. Uh, I used to play football for those who don't know. So um, he used to say, identify the enemy and you'll be able to fight a thousand more battles. If you don't want the meekness of Christ to be lost in your life, the reputation of godliness to be lost in your life, then it would serve us well, church, to end up realizing who the true enemy is behind everything. So as to look at those who disagree with us as image bearers who are being influenced and deceived, yes, but they're not the enemy, okay? Uh, your grandchildren is the enemy, grandpa's not the enemy, the other side of the family is not the enemy, the other aisle of politics are not the enemy. There's an enemy who's influencing bad and ungodly thinking. Can the church say amen? amen? And if this sounds like doom and gloom, it is what it is, but it's not God's intent for us to remain there. We're actually to be encouraged, and here's why. Verse 15, Jesus talking to the Father again. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Jesus knew how strong the enemy is. Strong created being. And yet, notice, he doesn't say, hey, bring him with me, God. Bring him. He could have done that. That's God. He could have done that. He ends up saying, no, keep him here. Leave him here. And there's two reasons why. One, and there are plenty of reasons, but two we'll look out. One is that Jesus wasn't scared. Have you looked up the record of what Jesus did to the enemy during his earthly ministry? Okay, after 40 days of fasting, the enemy came and tempted him and said, hey, here's all power, here's all pride, here's all kingdoms. You, you can have it. Literally, the keys of this world are in your hand if you just bow to me. And Jesus whooped that boy. He didn't give in to any temptations. And then, by the way, if you were wondering, the next battle he had with the enemy, he ends up being crucified. Three days, everyone, just as we all would, would end up being sorrowful, sad. And yet on the third day... He ends up resurrecting, conquering Satan's sin and, and death. And symbolically, what ended up happening was the enemy got curb stomped. And then there's going to be a future day that Revelation ends up talking about. And that's where Jesus is going to have his second return, and that boy's going to KO the enemy. So he ain't scared, and neither should the church be, of movements of this world and especially the enemy behind. And the second one is the last one we want to end off with. The second reason of why we're left behind and the, and the disciples were as well is found in 16 through 18. Jesus speaking to the God the Father, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is your truth. Holy means to be set apart. And in this context, he's saying, set them apart. I'm, I'm setting them apart as I leave for service unto God. 
Let's look at what that looks like. Jesus speaking, just as you sent me, sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I find it fascinating that Jesus says the word sent. He could have said the word left. I am leaving them, but he says, I am sending them into the world. And what you can take from that is that Jesus is an intentional God. He didn't accidentally, oops, I ended up leaving my disciples. He, have, he has left you for a specific purpose and shared assignment, church. You have been sent by God. It wasn't an accident whether you only had one mom, one dad, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity. It's not an accident. And it's not an accident that you're sitting right here being poured into by the word of God and being reminded that God is intentional. And that you've been sent by God. And the assignment that we all have, just to refocus us, is one that is shared. In verse 20, Jesus continues, I'm not praying for these disciples, but also for the ones who will believe in me through their message. In other words, the assignment that we share with the disciples of being sent is the assignment of making disciples. Look at the Great Commission up here. After three days from this moment, Jesus is going to speak again as he revisits the disciples. And he says, I have been given all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he passes off his authority to the disciples, anyone who's born again in this room. And he says, go and make disciples of every nation. Church, we have not been left, but we've been sent. And we've been sent to make disciples. Now that is, just seems like a, what, like what is disciple? I remember I got born again, I'm like, what that mean? Disciple, follower, better understood as student, apprentice, and learner. Student, apprentice, and learner. And Jesus implies here, look at it. He implies that disciples, that learners are not made, but students, sorry, that students are not born, but they're made. Learners of Christ are not born. When you get born again, you don't just become a learner. But they have to be made. It's a process where the people of God get around one another and they talk about the word of God and they counsel one another and they teach one another and they admonish the word of God in one another. Students don't just happen. Just like leaders rarely just happen. Learners of Christ have to be made. And people have to make learners of Christ. And guess what? Who do they have to be? Learners of Christ, students and apprentices. Dallas Willard, an American author, amazing God. He was a savant of discipleship, died a decade ago. He ends up saying this. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing, that's a strong word, in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. As my friend Dewey would say, it's so simple to learn to do what Jesus said to do. Church, my concern is not that you go and you replicate a disciple. My true concern is, are you a learner? Are you a student? Are you an apprentice? We got one spirit-filled woman giving an answer. Praise God for that. If we're to be honest, where would our spouses say that we are? Are we stewards of entertainment, television, um, politics and I'm not creating false dichotomies here or are we greater in a greater degree stewards or students of our brides 
because First Peter talks with us about how to live with our brides in empathy, sacrificially in Ephesians 5.25. What our spouses, what our coworkers, what our neighbors end up saying, they are more, of, uh, more students of God's word and how that's applied to everything more than they are to what they're applied to. I'd be interested to end up seeing where the church lands. And none of these are sinful, but the big thing we have to ask ourselves, church, is are we learning? What are we learning from? Who's pouring into us? That is apprenticeship. That is discipleship. My mentor once told me, you can only give what you have. You can only give what you have. If you're born again, you've been called to not just be a son of God, but to be a student of God, to be a learner of Christ, to be a disciple, an apprentice, to know that there's value in looking up to an older person and saying, you know more than me, not just because you live, but I see godliness in you. Oh, would God have more humility in this church and would he pour that out on this church that we would end up seeing young men and young women end up looking up to even their fathers, mothers, or outside the household to say, teach me. I want to know. Teach me. Von Perez, student minister, middle school, high school. That dude right there should be a buddy and a pal and an assistant to parents, not the main disciple maker. Where are we parents? Are we learning? How are we pouring out? Parents, you've been designed to make students of your children. If you don't, as we said earlier, someone else will in church, wherever you are, you've been sent out to make students. And notice the emphasis is not, is not on making converts, but it's actually what do you do with those converts? <laughs> It's not just when you get born again, but the emphasis is go and make and then multiply some students. And I'd like to look at this and say, here's a statement that an observation that I've found to be true. You can disciple and pour into a person who does not love Jesus, who even knows they're not a Christian. And that, my friend, is discipleship. It happens here often. Friend, for example, Jared in the congregation, a part of the core team, two years ago, he sits down and he says, I'm not a Christian, but I'm interested. And he was in a small group of a house for two years. And we treated him like he believed in Jesus. And we treated him like he truly was the son of God, even though he and we all knew that it wasn't. He was professing, confessing sin. And he was seeing it modeled. He was reading the word. Mentorship, discipleship was happening in your household we all can testify, parents, if you got little ones, come on now. You see their original sin. You know who born again yet and not. You know what I'm saying? Even within the family, you're continually discipling, making students and learners of your children. Church, it's not that intimidating, even though it seems like it. If you have the word of God and you have the Holy Spirit, and as Carrie says, if you are A and W, available and willing, you can disciple. You can pour God's word out into people. God's spirit may be prompting you with an image or a vision or a thought of a person to pour into. Move on that. Or to ask someone to actually disciple you. Move on that. Don't let their fear of rejection or to read your word or to join a small group. Move on that. <laughs> There's, the, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power, love, and a sound mind. There's no need to be timid in the asking. 
the cost of not making disciples is far greater than not entering into it. So quick story, before I ended up, um, or sorry, right when I became a Christian in 2007, I'm down at Lincoln playing ball. And right when I get born again, the dude ends up saying, now follow me as I follow Christ. Before that moment, my identity was in two things, what I did and my ethnicity. I grew up around a bunch of Tongans, that's my ethnicity, and I love diversity ethnically. Um, one of the things I said coming to Nebraska and when my mom asked me, hey, will you come here? I said, no. And I, uh, I love the people, but I can't. And she said, as we're taking off from Lincoln, I distinctly remember, she says, why? And I said, too many white people. You can laugh, okay? That's funny. But it's also a real thing. Yeah, my bride just pointed, and you married one too? So. <laughs> she did though, for real. That's why I, I did that. The reality is that my identity was naturally in my appearance and the culture behind it and what I did which was football. That happens naturally and it's a God beautiful given thing that you thank God for your ethnicity. It's not an accident. You thank God for your gender. It's not an accident, fill in the blank. But if it were not for him then the next week and then the week after to give me Colossians 3.11 and talk about how in Christ there's no Jew, Scythian, Greek or female, but Christ is in all and all. And letting me know that my identity was not in my Tonganness, but in my sonship of Christ. I would have fallen straight into that pit and try to like finagle some dynamics to rationalize how I can still be Tongan first. If, my, if that dude who led me to Christ did not pour into me the word of God and disciple me and sit me down and say, look at Galatians 2.20, you've been crucified with Christ. It's you who, who no longer lives, but Christ lives in you by faith but by faith in the Son of Man who gave himself up for you. I would have lived my mind, I would have lived my life barely looking different. But yet when those words, I had to report to him every week and say, and recite them and talk about how I wrote them down and how I was memorizing them, they got integrated into my bloodstream and I can't help but think that that is a part of why I am the way I am biblically. That my allegiance is to Christ first and foremost and to those things after. I often think the disconnect because my background is probably discipleship between the people of God disagreeing on certain things now. Moral issues. Probably discipleship more than anything. I know a lot of born again family of mine that disagree with a lot of things that I believe biblically and they also profess Christ. And I look back and I say, man. I think discipleship may, and I don't say that pridefully, may have been a distinction between the difference. Dallas Willard says it this way. Dallas Willard again shined today. The greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Christ, steadily learning from him on how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Friends, we will be hated on. The enemy is behind it. But take courage, Jesus has overcome the world, church. You haven't been left, you've been sent. Today was just a pat on the butt saying, go get it. It's time to disciple. Jesus, thank you so much for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your cause. 
and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.